From Centered, welcome to the Take Root Podcast, where our purpose is to share testimonies that encourage you to deepen your roots of faith. Join host Karen Johnson to hear stories of those who have experienced God directing their own lives to a deeper, engaged faith. So friends, I am so delighted today to get to introduce you to another dear friend of mine, Richard Stearns. He is the President Emeritus at World Vision, where he served as president for 20 years. Prior to that, he was CEO at both Lennox and Parker Brothers Games. A graduate of the Wheaton School of Business and author of four books, you would never guess that Rich had such a challenging and painful childhood. His current book, Lead Like It Matters to God, is a new favorite of mine, and I'm excited for us to hear Rich share about it today. So welcome, Rich. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us today. Hey, thanks, Karen. It's great to be with you. Yeah, great to be with you, too. Um, So you have had an incredible life and one that most would define as very successful. We'll talk about that word later and what you think of it. (laughs) But you had a very challenging childhood. Would would you share that story with us to begin with? Yeah, so, um, you know, most people who would look at my career and resume would think that I might have been born with a silver spoon in my mouth. And, yep. uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, I, I was born and raised in Syracuse, New York, which is distinguished as being the snowiest city in the United States, uh, getting, <laughs> getting 10 feet of snow in the average year. Oh, wow. And um, uh, so I started out my life cold uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and snowbound, but, you know, my parents were, um, my parents struggled a lot. My father had three marriages and three divorces. My my mother was his third wife. Mm. He was an alcoholic, uh, kind of a lifelong alcoholic. And uh, that alcoholism led to, mm. you know, the ruining of his marriages and, uh, yeah. and actually his failures in his business. He had a small used car lot and sold mm. used cars. And he went bankrupt twice. And the, the second time, um, mm you know, the bank foreclosed on our house and we were evicted. Uh, my mother left him and the family fell apart. And, and the other thing about my parents is uh, they were not educated. Uh, my, my dad dropped out of the eighth grade. Um, wow. And my mother dropped out of high school. Um, so uh, kind of an inauspicious beginning for somebody that, you know, mm-hmm. wanted to, you know, get a good education and, you know, ultimately become a CEO or a leader. Um, but, you know, I, uh, you know, I think in many ways, uh, my parents' challenges motivated me to try to find a better way to live, you know, to try yeah. to not repeat the mistakes uh, that they had made. And uh, so I kind of uh, resolved, uh, you know, as a young boy, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, that, you know, maybe through education, I could, uh, you know, kind of escape from this kind of uh, mm-hmm. life. And, and I always dreamed of having uh, a stable family, right? Uh, mm. You know, a loving marriage and a stable family. And, you know, our family, you know, so I married Renee, who yeah. is an amazing woman. And uh, we've been married now 46 years. We have five wow. children, six grandsons. And mm. uh, so in a lot of ways, my childhood dreams came true. Yes, indeed. In a beautiful way. And I know your kids and uh, they are just amazing people themselves. And Renee, um, and, and she is just such a treasure, uh, and she's a key part of your story. We're going to get to that in just a second. But first, I want to ask you, you, you mentioned how that you had this desire 
even as a young boy to um, to have a better education and a better life. But what what do you think was different about you from other kids that were under similar circumstances? I mean, you worked so hard. You had this determination and you didn't give up to get into Cornell and then into the Wharton School of Business. How, what, what was different about you that had you go that direction rather than, you know, the direction your dad went into alcohol yeah. or drugs or whatever else? Well, you know, I sometimes say with a little humor that my dad was a phenomenal role model. Um, <laughs> he, he, he modeled exactly the wrong things to do. Hmm. Huh. <laughs> and, uh, and yet, you know, I love my dad. My dad loved me. He, he hmm. was just a man that he, he was probably a product of his own environment and yeah, uh, yeah. unable to cope with the pressures of his life and the struggles yeah. that he had. And uh, so he turned to alcohol. And hmm. so it was kind of a sad story. But, you know, I think part of what motivated me, you know, fortunately, I, I grew up in kind of a middle class suburb of Syracuse. And most of my classmates uh, came from very stable homes, you know, hmm. their, their, their fathers were professionals and huh. insurance salesmen and doctors and, hmm. you know, people like that. And, and so my, my peer group was, uh, came from families that were, hmm. you know, more intact and, and I was able to kind of come of age in with that peer group. In fact, huh. some of those families took me under their wing because they kind of knew that uh. my family was falling apart and, like I'd go over to a buddy's house and, you know, his parents kind of knew what I was going through. And so they'd mm. invite me to stay for dinner or, you know, hey, come on out to our lake house this week and swim with wow. us. And so I appreciate that, you know, other families kind of reached out to me a bit. And then huh. my older sister, uh, she was six years older and she mm. um, she was the one that started talking to me about education. You know, you've huh. got to get an education. You've got to get an education. And so huh. she kind of awakened me to the possibilities of, of that. Um, so, you know, I think, um, you know, those things and the fact that I was a white male uh, in, in mm. a society where uh, there were many opportunities for me, mm. there were scholarships available, uh, mm. um, there were free public libraries, you know, just things mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. uh, you, you tend to take for granted, but they, they mm. all were, were helpful. But I, I, I think the last thing I would say is I felt a little bit uh, like I was performing without a net, you know, walking the tightrope without mm. a net below me. Yeah. Even when I went to college, you know, I went to Cornell University, one of the uh -huh. Ivy League schools, and uh, um, most of the kids that were there came from very prosperous families. So they had a safety net, right? They, right. if they flunked out of Cornell or, you know, made mm -hmm. a mistake, you know, they had a net that could catch them. I didn't have a net, you know, right. I used to joke that when I was in college, I sent money home to my mother instead of vice versa. Uh, I don't know how true that is, but I do remember a few times uh, hmm. where I tried to help her out. But um, so failure really wasn't an option for me. Uh, I just mm -hmm. felt like the consequences of not performing and doing well were, were were too negative, and I just I couldn't go there. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's powerful. Well, so back to Renee. Um, she's also a dear friend, and I love her dearly. She she is a key part of your story. I'd love for you to share uh, just a bit about how you guys met, and the and, and how that relationship developed, because that's a, a an incredible story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, my senior year at Cornell, um, I had been I had become so self-sufficient, you know, because, you know, even from my childhood, I kind of had to look out for myself. And 
I had to put myself through Cornell. And so by my senior year, uh, number one, I was egotistical, uh, you know, uh, and I was pretty much an atheist. I mean, I, mm. I had had my own religion of self-reliance, right? Uh, yeah. And I had made it uh, through this college. I had been accepted at the Wharton School of Business. Uh, you know, I was on the success train at this point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Ivy League schools have a way of beating the religion out of you as well. And, and so I didn't grow up in a Christian home, uh, per se. Uh, but, um, but I was, you know, by my senior year, I was more or less an atheist or agnostic. And then mm-hmm. I got fixed up on a blind date a month <laughs> before I graduated uh, with this freshman girl who I was warned was a Jesus freak. <laughs> and I thought, well, that, that's a challenge. I'll take that challenge, you know. And uh, <laughs> Uh, actually, her roommate fixed us up, and uh, I think she thought, you know, I've got to get Miss Goody Two Shoes uh, a real dose of reality here, and I'm going <laughs> to fix her up with this senior guy who's, you know, who, who's not going to he's not going to listen to this Jesus stuff of hers. And uh, uh, so, anyways, we went on this blind date, and to make a very long story short, we you know we didn't have a lot in common, and so we we went to a movie on campus, and then over to a coffee house just to talk. And when we ran out of things to talk about because it didn't seem like we had much in common, she pulled out Campus Crusades' little tract, "The Four Spiritual Laws." I love it. And started to read to me that God loved me and had a wonderful plan for my life. And I looked at her and I said, "Really, you're gonna you're gonna do this?" You know and and she said, I am quite serious, uh, you know, and I'd like to continue. And I said, okay, well, take your best shot. I said, <laughs> I, I said, my, my roommate for the last four years was, is a Christian and he hasn't had any success with me. And uh, oh my gosh. the girl I dated in high school was a Christian and she didn't have any success with me. Hmm. So anyways, Renee did go through the four spiritual laws with me that <laughs> night, but you know, it was, uh, it was funny because it, uh, it, it led to a very deep conversation about life mm. and faith and, mm. you know, what's the meaning of all of this and what are we going to do when we become adults and graduate? And mm. so I remember asking her the, uh, the question, you know, so what are you going to do when you graduate from Cornell? And she said, oh, I'm, I'm going to help the poor. I'm going to mm. become a lawyer and help the poor. Mm. And I said, well, that's, very, that's a very nice thing to, to do. And she said, well, what about you? I said, I'm going to be a CEO and make a lot of money. <laughs> and, she, and I remember her saying something like, what a pathetic goal for your life, you know, ah. to become a CEO and make a lot of money, you know, there's mm. no meaning in that. And uh, mm. well, anyways, uh, boy, what a first date, <laughs> what a first date. I mean, yeah, when her sparks were flying and, and, um, but there was something about her that I was just attracted to. And mm. uh, so over the next month, because again, I was a month from graduation, we, mm. uh, you know, I tried to bump into her accidentally on purpose on campus, and we mm-hmm. ended up studying together on campus. And, mm. and then she asked me to her sorority uh, pledge formal, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which was a couple of weeks later, and we just found ourselves kind of falling in love uh, mm. with this big barrier between us called uh, religion, uh, Christian, yeah. the Christian faith. And uh, yeah. so that's how we met. And, you know, I mean, it's not how it ended, but you know, it's right, right. It's but now, this this is the next part of the story. I really want you to tell is is how you you broke up, and then yeah. you you went on a, a mission to tell tell about that. Yeah, so we started dating, you know, April of my senior year, and then I graduated in May, and. Uh, ended up at, at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania, which was about a five-hour drive to mm-hmm. Cornell. So she was at Cornell. I was, you know, five hours away. And 
we tried to maintain this long distance dating relationship. But every time we talked about faith, we had a big argument, you know, because um, mm -hmm. I was having none of it. And mm -hmm. she was getting increasingly concerned. Why did I start dating this guy that doesn't yeah. share my faith? And yet we were in love with each other. And, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, the arguments just got more and more regular. And I just said, why, why can't you just believe what you believe? And I can believe what I believe. And mm. we can just be, be together. And, and uh, so we finally, I think it was November of that year, we, uh, we had another big argument. And I literally said to her, you got to make a choice. It's either me or God. Hmm. And I, I, to this day, I'm lucky that a lightning bolt didn't hit me um, when I said that. <laughs> and she said, well, you've just made my choice pretty easy. I hmm. choose God. And uh, hmm. this is never going to work out. I could never hmm. marry somebody that didn't share my faith. I should have never let it go this far. And we broke up. And, yeah. uh, and we were both kind of devastated emotionally by this, but it was kind of inevitable. And yeah. that started me thinking who is this Jesus Christ that yeah. caused me to lose the woman I love? I mean, uh, mm. you know, he's been dead for 2000 years and, and uh, he's still <laughs> causing trouble, you know? <clears throat> and um, so I, I, I actually just started reading. Uh, I had a book, uh, basic Christianity by John Stott mm. that uh, my high school girlfriend had given me and said, read this. Of course I didn't read it. Mm. And I just picked it up one night and I read it cover to cover. Um, mm, in, wow. in one sitting. And I found myself at four in the morning kind of trembling in my bed because of wow. what I had read. And, hmm. and then I went to the bookstore the next day and I went to the religion section and I hmm. bought like a dozen other books mm -hmm. on comparative religion, philosophy, apologetics, science and scripture. Hmm. And I just started voraciously reading these books to, you know, to, hmm. to learn more about, hmm. it was amazing how little I knew about the Christian faith. I mean, I yeah. really knew almost nothing. And, um, and so I called Renee in that process and I said, well, I know we're broken up, but I just thought you'd be interested to know I'm reading all of this, hmm. this stuff about the Christian faith, because hmm. the next time I see you, I want to have better arguments. <laughs> and uh, that was my way of saying, I'm crying, you know, I'm trying mm -hmm, to learn mm -hmm, more. Mm -hmm. uh, anyways, uh, a few months later, um, you know, I was back at business school and, and uh, doing my, my homework every night. And then after my homework is done, I'd start reading these books. And I think I read mm. about 50 uh, books wow. uh, over a period of five or six months and a lot of C.S. Lewis. And, uh, and then one day I just realized that if I had to bet my life on whether Jesus Christ was the son of God, mm. and in a real sense, we do have to bet our lives one way or the other on that. Yeah, yeah. And I said, I would bet that he was. I, I've been convinced intellectually that he he is the son of God. And so once I was convinced intellectually, I, I had to do the obvious thing is I had to commit, you know, like I've mm -hmm. got to make this commitment and it can't yeah. just be a head commitment. It's got to be a whole life commitment. And so I got yeah. down on my knees in my dorm room at the Wharton school and I, mm -hmm. I prayed kind of a halting sinner's prayer. And I said, Lord, I don't know what to do next. I don't know, I don't mm -hmm. know how to do this. But mm -hmm. I know I want to live my life for you and go where you send me to go and do what you tell me to do. And I'm mm -hmm. yours. Wow. That, it's just such an incredible story to me, how that divine appointment of that blind date and where that led. It's just really amazing. And you know, it's funny when, when you think, Karen, that the, the three things we talked about that night, we talked about Jesus and, yeah. of course, 
uh, you know, a year later, I became a Christian. Hmm. We talked about Renee becoming a lawyer and helping the poor, which she did. She did. Yeah. And we talked about me becoming a CEO, which I did, you know, yes. and it was like, it was almost like a prophetic evening that yeah. everything we talked about came to be. And right, uh, right. as, as you and I've discussed with Renee before that, you know, God honored her commitment to the poor many, many years later when he called me yes. and us, she and I to world yes. vision yeah. because I spent 20 years with her at my side, helping yep. the poor all over the world. So, you know, you can't write a script like that. You can't, you can't, only God can. So yeah. I just, oh, I just love, I love this story. It's so incredible. So, so God did take you into these leadership roles, CEO at two major companies, and then the president of World Vision, and and you have you took into that uh, this heart for Jesus and leading like Him, and so now you've written this amazing new book, "Lead Like It Matters to God," and it's a, it's a new favorite of mine. I just absolutely love it. Uh, I have to say, I laughed out loud reading the the first introduction part in the introduction when you said, "I, I really uh, don't care for leadership books." <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but um, anyway, so, but what compelled you to write this book on leadership? Well, you know, I, I, I'd written three books before this. Um, probably uh -huh. the one people would know most is The Hole in Our Gospel. And um, mm -hmm. all Love of the, my previous books have been about the work of World Vision, you know, poverty and justice issues um, related to my work at World Vision. Mm -hmm. And uh, but when I when I retired, I, I just realized, you know, I said, I said to myself, I have a really unusual career path, you know, having been the CEO of two secular companies and then this large Christian ministry. And I thought, you know, I've learned a, a lot about leadership over the years, uh, often yeah. the hard way, often the yeah. hard way. And, um, and I, I just started to think I have something to say about leadership that I think could be helpful to younger leaders. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of things I know today that I wish I'd known when I was 30 or 40. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't. And you know, I think we call that wisdom that, you know, when you get older and you have these experiences, you accumulate some wisdom. And so how, you know, I'm always a believer that we should be stewards of our own lives and our own stories. And uh, to be a steward of my story is like, how can I use what God did in my life to help other Christian leaders become better at, you know, their leadership responsibilities. And so mm -hmm this idea for a book crystallized, you know, at the same time, I think we're living in a moment where these values that I write, I write about 17 values that uh, describe a Christian leader, mm -hmm. things like integrity and humility and, and, mm -hmm. and uh, love and forgiveness and listening and balance and courage and perseverance. And, uh, hmm. and I thought we're living at a time when these values are kind of under assault. You know, there are corporate scandals yeah. Uh, there was the Me Too movement, you know, scandals just about in every sector of our society about the abuse of women in the workplace. Our politics have gotten uglier than any time in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. uh, and then even worse, the, the, the scandals within the, the Christian world, uh, megachurch pastors, you know, falling from grace, uh, mm -hmm. huge ministry leaders being discredited because of their conduct or their behavior. And, mm -hmm. and I thought, wow, what happened to leading with values, you know, yeah. leading with bedrock values. Jesus said the man or woman who builds their house on the rock yeah. uh, are, are the people that hear my words and put them into practice. And, yeah. uh, and, and those that 
don't hear his words and put them into practice, build their house on the sand, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so that parable uh, I talk about at the end of my book, but it's, uh, I just felt like I had something to say about calling people back to values-driven leadership instead of trying to imitate the latest corporate paradigm for leadership and bringing that into your church or your ministry or, or if you work in the marketplace, you know, just being uh, a slave to these corporate paradigms and cultures. When you're a Christian in a secular environment, you have a different kind of responsibility. Right, right, for sure. Well, where I work at Centered, our mission statement is raising up generations of Jesus-centered leaders. And um, your book is definitely going to be added to my required reading list <laughs> because it does such a fabulous job of um, describing what that means, what what it looks like to be a Jesus-centered leader and an ambassador. You talk about that in there, about being an ambassador mm -hmm. for Christ. So I want to read a quote from your book and then ask you to expand a bit upon it. Um, uh, let me just read this. I believe God is far more concerned about how a leader leads than he is about the success that leader delivers because success is overrated. So talk about that a bit. Well, there's a couple things in my book that you know seem counterintuitive. You're writing a book on leadership and you say success is overrated and most people buy and read leadership books because they want to be successful. Uh-huh. And uh and the other thing, this is funny, when I was writing the, the first couple of chapters, uh, the, the first value I write about is surrender, and the next mm -hmm, one mm -hmm. is sacrifice. And Renee said to me, you sure you want to start a leadership book with surrender <laughs> and sacrifice? You know, is, is anybody <laughs> going to read chapter three after that? You know, because that's not what people typically sign up for, you know, when they read a leadership book. But Right, right. But, you know, I think, Karen, we are living in a success saturated culture you know yeah. just think about it uh every year they publish the the fortune 400 wealthiest people in the world list mm -hmm. and everybody wants to see that list who's on it who mm -hmm. moved up who moved down um we celebrate success in every dimension you know in the church we celebrate these mega churches you know yeah wow this pastor has a church of thirty thousand or twenty thousand, and mm -hmm. we celebrate the most famous celebrities. We celebrate the teams that have the winning record. We, uh, we, we are worshiping at the altar of success. And I, mm -hmm. I say in the book that, you know, it's almost like this colorless, odorless gas, like carbon monoxide. We're all breathing it in, even as Christians, we're breathing it in, but it can be deadly, you know, and mm -hmm. the, the, the drive for success, which just seems like a, a normal thing in America, uh, it's not what Jesus called us to. Jesus didn't call us to be successful. And as you know, I tell the story in the introduction about Mother Teresa, who really kind of inspired this book, you know, just a quick anecdote that years ago, Senator Mark Hatfield visited her in India, and he looked at the scope and the scale of poverty and suffering just in Calcutta. Yeah. And then he looked at this four foot nine inch nun, you know, with a little uh, outpost there in the middle of the sea of poverty. And he thought, and he said, you know, Mother Teresa, don't, don't you feel like a failure because you've been here for 30 or 40 years working with the poor and poverty is worse today than when you started. Aren't, aren't you overwhelmed and, and don't you feel sometimes like a failure? And she said to him, my dear Senator, God did not call me to be successful. He hmm. called me to be faithful. Hmm. And in those 14 words, Mother Teresa turned our leadership paradigm inside out and upside down, you know, yeah. that 
And, and so I, I also say in the introduction, you know, that all of us will someday stand before the Lord and maybe give an accounting for our life or hear him give an accounting of our life. And I just can't imagine that God is going to be impressed that Lenox China took the number one market share uh, position mm. in the fine yeah. China market when Rich Stearns was leading it or mm -hmm. that Parker Brothers Games, you know, doubled in size when Rich Stearns was leading that company. I, I just don't think those things matter much to God. Right. And I think what matters to God is not our success, but our faithfulness. Yeah. And frankly, you know, I mean, you could simply say that for the Christian leader, faithfulness is the definition of success. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so that's what I want leaders to hear that success can be an idol in your life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I speak at commencements from time to time. And, um, you know, one of the things I say to the kids, if you make success your goal in life, mm -hmm. you've got mm -hmm. the wrong goal. Yeah. Uh, you need to make discipleship, uh, following Jesus, that's your goal in life, you know, to become more like Jesus is your yeah. goal in life. If you do that faithfully, you, you may very well be successful, but mm -hmm. that's not because it was your goal. It, it was the byproduct of faithfulness. Right. And so I, I think that just that subtle switch, you know, between those two, it's not success. That's not my goal. Faithfulness mm -hmm. is my goal. I may be successful. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try to glorify God in everything I do. And if I'm successful, great. Mm -hmm. uh, but if I'm not, at least I will have been faithful. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you uh, actually made th this huge decision to leave the quote unquote success of being CEO at Lenox to take this position at World Vision. And that was a big, big change and decision, um, moving your family across the country and um, leaving that um, you know, CEO position, like you said, which was your original uh, goal. What, what was that like for you to make that decision? You know, the very first value I talk about in the book is surrender, as I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. That, And I just think that the starting point for every Christian, we become Christians by surrendering our life mm -hmm. to Christ. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but I say in the book that surrender is not a one-time event like, you know, uh, lease surrender to grant at Appomattox, you know, it, mm -hmm. it, surrender is kind of a daily process for Christians, you know, we, mm -hmm. and, and the Lord wants us to surrender everything in our lives to him. Yeah. And, and yet we are very clever at compartmentalizing and keeping certain things out of that surrender, right? It might be our yeah. career. We don't really want to surrender our career it might be our money. We don't really want to surrender mm -hmm. our money. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are things in our life that are harder to surrender to God than others. And so, you know, my whole life uh, and life story is a story about learning more and more about surrender at each step of the way. And, mm -hmm. and um, uh, as you know, in the book, I talk about being fired twice from jobs uh, yeah. Yeah. and fired twice in one year, which is hard to pull off. You know, it's hard to do that. <laughs> uh, I got fired by two different companies twice in, in the same year. And, um, uh, but those moments uh, were times when the Lord was working in my heart over the issue of surrender. Who's in charge, Rich? Who's in charge of your career? Is it you? Do you want to be in charge? Or is it me? And if it's me, you're going to do what I call you to do, go where you, I call you to go, and you're going to just relinquish control 
mm-hmm. to me, you know, mm-hmm. and we don't like to relinquish control uh, of our lives to our no, spouse, to don't. anyone, you know, to, <laughs> we don't. And so it is a daily process. And so ultimately those early uh, times with the Lord, unemployed and struggling and, and crying out for Lord, why me, you know, mm. can I get back to work? Those early moments uh, and experiences I had led up to the call from World Vision, you know, as a mm-hmm. recruiter called me and said, World Vision is looking for a new leader. And I won't tell the whole long story, but it was the Lord again saying, okay, are you really ready to surrender? You know, are you really ready to say not my will, but thy will? Hmm. Uh, because if you are, I've got a job I want you to do. And as you know, Karen, it was a hard decision. I didn't mm-hmm. do it with a great deal of joy. And uh, it wasn't saying, here I am, Lord, send me. You know, I want to be your. <laughs> it was like, do I have to? I was more like Moses. Do I have to? Can't you send somebody else to do this? There's got to be somebody more qualified than me. And But ultimately, you know, partially because Renee uh, urged me to be obedient, uh, as she always does. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, I did take the job and it led to the 20 most phenomenal years of my life, uh, mm-hmm. you know, feeling that I was really being obedient and I was in the zone with God and, uh, yeah. and I, he, I was where he wanted me to be. Yeah. And the impact you that you had on the world by making that decision in caring for so many children around the world is just... Um, an incredible story in its own. So maybe another time we'll talk about that one. (laughs) Yeah. But I want to come back to, I talk with a lot of young leaders, like in their twenties and thirties and um, who feel uncertain about their jobs, their career, (coughs) their direction. They're, they're really like, Mm -hmm. how do I determine what I'm supposed to do? Should I go into full-time ministry? Should I go into the marketplace? Um, What is my calling? How do I figure that out? How would you respond to those questions? Yeah. And in, in particular, the whole full-time ministry marketplace, mm-hmm. that understanding that you explain well, think, so well in your book. Yeah. I think, first of all, I want to say to younger people that a career is a very long time, you know, mm-hmm. and when you're 25 and impatient and, mm-hmm. you know, I've already been at this company 12 months and I haven't been promoted or mm-hmm. I, I've been... Mm-hmm. Or I've been in this job for 12 months and I hate it. You know, it's yeah, not what yeah. I want. You know, when, when we get out of college or finish our education and we take our first job, um, it's kind of culture shock because we go from, you know, uh, fraternity parties and leisure with, <laughs> with peers, uh, spring break. Uh, we go from that to responsibility and, right. you know, working eight to five and, and maybe longer and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, responsibilities and two weeks of vacation every year instead of, you know, yeah. 20 weeks or whatever. And yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a rude awakening. And, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of young people, um, let's face it, most of us when we're in our 20s don't really have a good idea of what we want to do long term or how we're going to get there we may have some inkling some people have more than others mm-hmm. but um a career is a very long time and your current job may not be your dream job but it may be a stepping stone uh, to your dream job because every job we take uh, helps us learn more about ourselves you know yeah. what am yeah. i good at what am i bad at what, mm-hmm. what do i what do I love to do and mm-hmm. what do I find to be tedious and, and, mm-hmm. and difficult? And, and I have no interest in doing that. Right. And right. So part of the, part of the process is learning more about yourself. And, you know, if your current job is not very fulfilling and 
you, you can still learn a lot from it. You can learn the things you don't like. You know, if you're doing mm -hmm. a job you don't like, that's an important thing to learn. Well, I yeah. don't like this job because X, mm -hmm. Y, and Z. And uh, so the next job you find, you try to find a job that has more of the things you're good at and more mm -hmm. of the things you like. And <clears throat> so uh, again, you know, I started out selling uh, deodorant and shaving cream for Gillette. Uh, <laughs> and I thought, do I want to do this the rest of my life? And the answer was no. And then I jumped to a toy company and I loved mm -hmm. that job. It was a great experience and mm -hmm. uh, ended up later at Lenox, China. Every young boy's dream is to run a fine tableware <laughs> company, you know, <clears throat> and um you know, and, and then finally World Vision. So I'm a great example of how your career can take all kinds of twists and turns. Now, yeah. on, the, on the ministry versus uh, secular job issue, first of all, I think one of the points I try to make in this book is that your real job, if you're a follower of Christ, your real job, I don't care where you work, your real job is to be an ambassador for Christ in that place. So Absolutely. 2 Corinthians 5.20 is, if I have a life first, this is it. It goes like this. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God is making his appeal through us. So I love that verse. That's amazing. Uh, if you're listening today, you have just been appointed as Christ's ambassador. Mm -hmm. What an amazing title, right? What an amazing job. And what do ambassadors do? They represent the values, the character, and the priorities of the one that sends them. So wherever you work, uh, you or wherever you live, you are representing the values, the character, and the interests of Christ in that place, mm -hmm. and that is your real job. Uh, yes. That is your real job. Your what other the other job you may have is your cover job. You know, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I talk about that TV show, The Americans, where these Russian spies were living undercover in the United States in the 1980s, and running a travel agency. And I say, well, the travel agency was their cover job. Their real job was to spy for the Soviet Union. And mm -hmm. so it's not the perfect metaphor, but it, it's, it's, it's a way to think about your, your calling as a follower of Christ sits above your career. Yes. And your career is the place where you live out your calling, right? Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. so that means that your secular work is also sacred, you know, yes. that, because you are now the fragrance of Christ at Amazon, at Boeing, uh, mm -hmm. you know, wherever you might work, if you're in government, mm -hmm. you're to be the fragrance of Christ in that place. Now, the decision on whether to move to a Christian organization or a Christian ministry, a lot of that has to do with how God leads you, you know, and what your, your passions are. God, God usually puts passions inside of us. He puts mm -hmm. gifts and talents and passions. And as we get more in touch with our gifts and talents, what has the Lord given me? What, what attributes and assets and, and inklings and passions has he given me? And, uh, and, and what are the things that really make my heart soar, you know, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if you're a young person and you just love, you know, these social justice ministries or international justice mission or world vision or mm -hmm. uh, compassion international, um, you know, you can listen to those voices, listen yeah. to those voices, pray about yeah. it. But, you know, there's a principle in scripture that if you're faithful with a little, mm. uh, you know, God may entrust you with a lot. And so even now, if you're 25 or 30, be faithful where you are, be a yeah. faithful ambassador to Christ there, be faithful in your tithing and your obedience and the, the way you live your lives in front of other people. And as you do this, the, the Lord may give you increasing opportunities and responsibility to serve him in, in different ways. Um, you know, my former pastor, Earl Palmer from University Presbyterian Church used to say to young people, 
you know, God can't steer a parked car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> what did he mean by that? Like, if you have an inkling that, you know, I really want to move toward some kind of Christian ministry, whatever it might be, uh, get your car on the road, move in that mm. direction, get moving, get out of yeah. the parking lot, right? And don't, yeah, just, yeah. don't just say, well, Lord, I'm sitting here waiting for you to give me this <laughs> perfect job. You know, investigate the kinds of organizations you might want to work for. Mm. Try to get some interviews, see if they have job openings, network with some people who work mm. in organizations like that and ask them about their jobs and, and what they like about them. And, you know, put yourself in play uh, and then see if the Lord opens doors for you uh, in that way. But um, I know the Bible doesn't say uh, God helps those who help themselves, but, uh, <laughs> but I think there is a notion that, um, uh, you know, following God's call takes a little work on your part too, to, yeah. to yeah. understand your gifts and strengths and to investigate and explore opportunities where you think uh, you could be useful to the kingdom. Um, but, uh, you, you may spend your whole career. Most people will spend their whole career in, in, in more secular, uh, marketplace jobs. Mm-hmm. And that's fine because, uh, you can have a huge influence in those places as well. It, remember part of the kingdom of God is we are sent people, you know, we as Christians have been sent into the world, mm-hmm. uh, as salt and light, right. To bring light into the darkness and, and yes. to bring the preservative of salt and, and to be beacons for, uh, the truth of scripture and, and the values of love and compassion. So you can be that ambassador at Amazon or Boeing or wherever you might work. And that's a real, that's a real kingdom assignment because God wants to make all of these institutions more pleasing to him and more mm-hmm. conformed to his likeness. And mm-hmm. so he sends us to these places. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's so well said. Thank you. All right. Well, I have, I have one last question, man. I could talk all day. I told you it was hard to, to to narrow down all the questions I had for you, but one last question for today. What have you been learning this last year as you were writing this book and just in consideration of all that's been going on in our world? What, what's God been teaching you? Well, um, it's been an interesting season for me because, as you know, I retired a little over two years ago. Mm-hmm. And so to go from 44 years of working full-time uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. every waking hour of the day, pretty much, um, to go to uh, summer vacation that never ends uh, <laughs> was kind of a, a culture shock. So part of it is just finding a rhythm in my own life. Uh, and before the, uh, before the podcast today, we talked about how I'm finding a way to reinvent myself, right? You know, and mm-hmm. so, you know, I'm a believer that, you know, God is still wants to use me. He still wants me to be his ambassador. And uh, so these days I'm, uh, you know, speaking about leadership and I wrote this book about leadership. And I think it's one of the ways that God can use me uh, in this next season, especially with younger leaders who might benefit from some of this. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think COVID-19, I I remember when, when COVID, when we realized how serious it was, I thought, Mm -hmm. man, I'm glad I'm not a leader right now in the uh, World Vision or at Lenox or any, any, any of these institutions, because this has been an extremely difficult year for leaders. And think about it, Karen, there has never been, since the Noah flood, there has never been a global event that affected every institution and leader in the world simultaneously. Hmm. This is the first time since the flood of Noah. Um, wow. And um, 
you know, there have been regional conflicts and problems and mm -hmm. disasters, but there's never been anything quite as pervasive and global as what we have been through. So mm -hmm. leaders have had to reinvent the way they lead and they've had to reinvent their organizations. They've had to navigate their organizations through treacherous, you know, and I don't care if you're a, a dry cleaner, you know, that runs one store or you're the leader of uh, Procter & Gamble. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. difficult, difficult times to, uh, to navigate through. So yeah. Uh, I think this has been a real testing time for leaders. Uh, and, and it's been a time when leaders have needed to be encouragers. You know, people are discouraged. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, people in your workplaces are discouraged and they need a, a leader that helps them see uh, a better future, helps them see light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Uh, the, the, other, uh, the other thing is corporate cultures, organizational cultures, are often created best in person when people mm. are gathered together in an office yeah. Uh, yeah. and they can, they can collaborate, you know, in a meeting room or mm -hmm. so shaping and creating culture virtually is, is a different mm -hmm. kind of challenge. And I think the yeah. best leaders are finding ways to build community and a sense mm. of esprit de corps mm -hmm. in an organization in some cases where new employees have never been to an office to right. meet, yeah. meet their coworkers face to face. And so yeah. it's, it's hard to uh, infect everybody with the culture that you want people to, uh, to embrace uh, of your organization and, mm -hmm. and to create its uniqueness. So I think those are some mm -hmm. of the challenges leaders are facing. Wow, that's really good. Well, thank you so much, Rich. Friends, you can tell that Rich is a very humble man with a great sense of humor and just an incredible passion for leading like Jesus. So I just, I can't encourage you enough to read this book, uh, Lead Like It Matters to God, because we're all leaders wherever God has placed us. And the encouragement in this book to live as his ambassadors to the world is something that we all need. Um, Rich has also recorded some fantastic podcasts with um, incredible leaders from around the world. Uh, and the, those are rich with insight too. So you can find those podcasts um, anywhere you look for your podcasts and it, it also entitled Lead Like It Matters to God. So Rich, thank you for sharing your time with us today and your story. And um, as I said, there's just so much more to it, uh, but uh, thank you for taking the time today to be with us. Hey, thanks Karen. And thanks for having the talk and thanks for what you do as well. Yeah, thank you. So until next time, God bless you all and um, take a look at, at this book and leading like Jesus. So bless you all. Talk to you again. Thank you for listening to the Take Root podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and share. To learn more about Centered and hear more stories of discovery and growth in Jesus, visit us at centered.org.